Welcome to Diary of a High Net Worth Investor with me, Graham Rowan, Chairman of Beaufort Private Equity. Our community of almost 800 high net worth families in 37 countries have a unique set of opportunities, but also some significant challenges. In this show, we look at how to maximize the good stuff while managing the risks and the downsides. Who knows, we might even make investing feel like fun. My guest today is someone I've known for something like 15 years and who's always impressed me on at least two levels. For his erudite wordsmithing that turns the dry subject of investing into works of literature and for his astute observations on everything from macroeconomics to the more dystopian side of where our society seems to be heading. What makes him especially worth listening to is that he's not simply an observer watching from the sidelines. He's a money manager who has to back up his insights with investment decisions. He was chief investment officer at Henry Ansbacher, Union Bancaire Privé and PFP Group before setting up his own price value partners fund in 2015. The clue is in the name. My guest today is Tim Price. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Graham. Well, you graduated from Oxford with a degree in English. I'm just wondering what kind of terrible calamity befell you that caused you to end up as a money manager in the city. It's it's a it's a fair question, and I, I share your I share your sense of horror and revulsion at the outcome. Um, so the the reality for me is that I, I originally planned as an arts liberal arts graduate to to go into something either journalism or media of some kind. And the, the harsh reality for me, at least, was that it, back in 91, which is when I entered the job market, it was a recession year, if you can remember. And basically, first first prize first prize jobs weren't weren't easy on the uh, weren't easily available. So, in a in a quirk of fate, which is unlikely to be repeated anytime soon by the, the sort of the graduate class of 2023, um, by didn't having an older brother who was already a, a bond trader at the time, he said, "Well, look, I know you want to do journalism type things, but." Don't discount the city because a it pays well and b it's quite interesting. Both of which I'd have to grudgingly accept with hindsight are true. So I, in addition to sort of applying for sort of media related things, I also applied for a few jobs in investment banks. And as luck would have it, one offer came through by way of a, a, a job doing bond sales for a fixed income sales for a Japanese bank. So I, I took that and kind of never really looked back. Okay, well, I mean, you've been a long-time advocate of Benjamin Graham's approach to value investing, and you've even included the word value in the name of your firm. How would you define value investing, and why has it been the core of your own investment philosophy? I think, I mean, I, I'm essentially quite conservative in terms of sort of risk, my approach to risk and approach to risk taking, and so that informs my my preferred way of managing money, whether it's my own money or client money or a combination of the two. And the the revelation for me was coming across a book called Against the Gods by a gentleman called Peter Bernstein, Peter L. Bernstein in the late 90s. And um, Against the Gods is a history of risk that I'd recommend for any finance geek like me. And within that, I I came across a quote from a guy called Daniel Bernoulli, who for anyone who's familiar with the world of science or fluid dynamics will recognize something called the Bernoulli Principle. And Bernoulli lived several hundred years ago, and he was a Renaissance guy in almost every sense of the word. But one of the things he made, he was probably the world's first behavioral economist. And what he said was that if you're managing money for wealthy people, quote, and this is the English quotation, 
the practical utility of any gain in portfolio value inversely relates to the size of the portfolio, unquote, or in even plainer English, if you're managing money for wealthy people, just don't lose it. They've already got the money, so they don't necessarily need to shoot the lights out in terms of getting future returns. But what they will be very unhappy with is if you lose it all. And so what effectively he expressed centuries before anybody else is the idea that the business of sensible investing is, is it has an asymmetric um, expectation. You want to try and secure as much of the upside as possible available from markets while trying to minimize the downside. And we know from subsequent research from people like Kahneman and Tversky that people are basically risk averse. So in other words, our, our attitude to profits and losses is not the same. If I say to you, for example, here we'll do a coin toss and heads, you win £100 and tells you have to give me £100. Winning £100 will, will give you some pleasure, depending on how, how wealthy you are to begin with. But losing £100 will give you that much extra pain. In other words, the, 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 the sense of joy and the sense of, of pain are not equivalent. So, so I'd say sensible investing, this is clearly from the school of Benjamin Graham, who is the guy that taught Warren Buffett at Columbia Business School in, in the very early days, back in the 1940s. The issue of value investing is basically, a lot of investment managers would say that all investing is, is value, all sensible investing is value investing. We'd, we'd describe it as basically, uh, particularly in the, in the world of listed equity investing, is simply trying to find high quality businesses um, that are cash hugely cash flow generative, that are profitable, that have little or no debt. So in other words, they have some defensive attributes too, but they're for whatever reason they're available at a discount to what most people would accept as their fair value, their inherent value. And as to why these opportunities exist is anybody's guess. I think the main reason they exist is because people aren't rational and, and neither are, therefore are markets. But either way, value investing, as we would describe it, is basically buying high quality businesses for less than they're worth. Okay, and and yet if we look at the, the the history of certainly the last ten years, possibly longer, we've seen this enormous amount of money uh, flowing towards this this very small number of uh, high growth high tech businesses, which have reached eye watering valuation multiples, such that even you know you look at something like the S and P five hundred now, it's really the S and P eight. Um, I mean, is there any value lurking in a market like that somewhere, or has it just become completely uh, a bubble territory in terms of where it's at today? Well, I think you're absolutely right. You've nailed the the essential problem, which is for the last 10 years, you, you really only had to make one decision, and that decision was which country to invest in. And the answer to that decision was basically invest in the US, more specifically invest in the so-called FANGs, the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, and probably now these days NVIDIA on top. The, and I think the reason for that huge, well, it's not huge, it's extremely narrow market breadth because there's a very, very small number of market leaders and the rest of the market is basically been going sideways or south. I think the main reason for that is because of the triumph of index investing, that an awful lot, I couldn't give you the precise percentage, but I, I could believe that nowadays it's it's north of 50%, particularly in the US market, which is, a, if nothing else, an efficient market. Um, I wouldn't say it's rational, I'd certainly say it's efficient. The rise of indexed investing, the, the likes of the rise of exchange-traded funds, ETFs, and so forth, passive investing, means that people, a lot of investors are basically not discerning as to what they own. They just want to own what's going up. Um, so that's if you like a form of moment, momentum investing, and that means that all the gains go to the you know the winners, but the winners won't be the winners forever. So at some point, there's going to be a day of reckoning. Seems to me, feels to me, you know, the gut feel I have in response to these trends 
particularly in a world of rising interest rates and high inflation, is that this 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 game of you know mega cap growth outperforming everything else is probably very soon going to come to an end. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 strange because it's certainly been a, a, a shall we say a mediocre or a challenging decade for value investors, um, and and you you want to believe that that is is going to turn. I mean, a lot of people now are saying that, that the British FTSE market is incredibly cheap. I mean, are, are you seeing more value there than you see in America? Well, we we screen almost mechanistically using Bloomberg for what we consider value, which is things like, you know, classic Ben Graham metrics, like low price to earnings multiples, low price to book multiples. And as I say, high, high cash flow, high cash flow generation, little or no debt. And we're finding opportunities um, with those kind of characteristics all around the world, including in the markets like US and in, including a fair few in the UK. The issue is, though, it's it, it 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 does tend to be somewhat sector specific. One of the sectors, for example, which we find utterly bizarre at present, the, the, one of the sectors is most attractive from a a profits perspective, from a cash flow generation perspective, is is actually the mining, the commodity sector, mm. and particularly precious metals companies. Now we like those anyway because of what's happening in the world in relation to to the debt market. So we're very concerned about the. You know that the explosion in, in government debt around the world, and as a result, we don't own bonds. Um, and the corollary of that is that we do like to own things that are basically not paper assets. And you can't get further away from paper assets, things like gold and silver, and commodities more generally. So there are definitely opportunities out there. the The weird thing is that these these stocks aren't already more popular because you'd think that in a, a world of high inflation. And concerns about the fiat currency world and concerns about credit risk and concerns about banking solvency and concerns about sovereign indebtedness that people would be queuing up to to get inflation hedges and and portfolio insurance in the form of likes of the likes of precious metals the reality is that at the moment these stocks are being given away but we, we, we we're not we're not in we're not bothered by why the opportunity exists we're just happy to exploit it yeah, uh, but it, it is an amazing uh, uh scenario and uh, I mean the the, the rationale I keep hearing is that oh well you know china's recovery post covid has stalled and therefore you know we're not seeing this sort of commodity super cycle that some people were predicting um but if you do apply any kind of rationale to it, the world and our, our lifestyle for all we think we're in this incredibly sophisticated digital world underlying it all is stuff being dug out the ground you know every time sure. a shiny new tesla goes by think about the kid up to his neck in mud in the democratic republic of congo mining the lithium for its batteries you know it, it, so much depends on these basic commodities and yet it just doesn't seem to be accounted for in the financial markets no i, I completely agree i mean basically you cannot have a functioning modern economy without the inputs that are things like commodities you know you cannot have an iphone without the likes of silver for example and God knows how many other metals and you know commodities as well. So the whole thing's baffling. I think the China thing may be a bit of a red herring, because what, whatever China doesn't make will ultimately be made somewhere else. It may be more expensive, but that brings us back to the whole inflation game again. Um, but I mean, China is a we, we've always found China a highly problematic place at the best of times. So we we've always steered clear of China a on valuation grounds because it's never been a particularly cheap market. Uh, we've steered clear of it steered clear of it because of um let's say the corporate governance issues because it's you know it's it's in many respects still a communist country mm. uh, with a with a sort of single overarching state government and we also have steered clear because we don't like the morality of investing in china 
for things like you know issues around things like slave labor so for us it's, it, it's a huge nothing burger but um as i say whatever china doesn't make will ultimately be made somewhere else so uh, we're not overly fussed about the idea that China may disappoint because we'll, we'll, you know, we were never investing there to begin with anyway. But we'll we'll find some other area where we can make hopefully some find some some decent value opportunities. Yeah, and one thing I hadn't fully realised until I did some research for a recent uh, article was just how rich in natural resources America is, and how they've kind of chosen not to exploit them and to rather just import a lot of these materials from China, um, almost kind of exporting, if you like, the the grubby stuff so that they can look better from a a green uh, washing perspective. But if they wanted to, America could produce a lot of these raw materials themselves and 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 really reduce their independ their dependence on some of these slightly dodgier countries around the other side of the world oh for sure i mean again none of you you mentioned you allude to green stuff but very little in the so-called green revolution to us makes an awful lot of sense so the idea that let's say electric cars are are as green as they're they're made out to be i think is a bit of a bit of a non sequitur you know the 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 electricity that powers them is ultimately generated by coal and gas power stations and oil power stations and as you've alluded to, a lot of the raw materials that go into the likes of a Tesla are actually dug out of the ground in extremely unpleasant conditions in many respects using slave la- child slave labor. Yeah. So, so I mean, looking at your know, asset allocation and your country allocation within the fund, clearly there's a very strong uh, resource bias there. You've got more than a quarter of the fund in Australia, for example. I mean, just talk us through a little bit about the asset allocation within the fund and, and how you've arrived at that. Yeah, it, again, it's really by a process of emanation. So we'll we'll just be drawn ultimately by where we we see the the most compelling value, and so the value attributes that we're looking for are cash flow, so free high high free cash flow, um, modest modest or ideally no debt, and again those sort of multiples, the sort of market multiples that everyone's looking at, things like P and PB and so on. By a process of emanation, the areas that we find most attractive are, as I've said, are in the commodities sector, where there's lots of cash flow generation going on, lots of profit, even at today's levels, let alone what might happen to the likes of gold and silver in the future. And because, not least, there are some areas where we probably couldn't invest even if we wanted to, namely markets like China and the, the commodity sector there. By a process of elimination, you get to areas like Australia, to a certain extent, North America and Canada. Um, and then once you're outside those regions for commodities, you're starting to go into sort of areas that we'd be a little bit more reticent about, like say Africa or, or Latin America. So the asset allocation largely reflects the companies that we want to mo- we think are most attractive, and that's clearly the likes of the mining stocks. And then the country allocation will reflect where we think is the the least worst way to be invested in those companies from a either a listing or an operational perspective. But clearly a big emphasis, I mean, almost half the fund, I think, is allocated to the commodity sector and perhaps a quarter to industrial. So it's it's definitely, uh, there's a strong theme there. Sure, but when, again, when, that, that's a pure reflection of sort of bottom-up value. So it's not to say that we're gold bugs, though I, I probably would probably uh, accept, accept the charge if someone accused me of being one. But it's more a reflection of, you know, that we, we're simply going where the value is. So that there'll come a point, no doubt, in the future when there are better valuations available in some other area of the market, whether it's retail, whether it's transportation or utilities or I, I, I'm reticent to say banking because we've never owned banks. and We'll probably never likely own banks either for you know reasons, again, partly of morality and partly <laughs> of the fact complete lack of transparency in terms of what they're actually getting up to. 
Yeah, but I think one of the fascinating things you touched earlier on about how uh, huge the the uh, passive uh, investment sector has become. We think of companies like BlackRock. Um, when you look at things like their the ESG policies they've been pushing and the the amount of their their ability to impact on whether certain kinds of company get the investment they need. I think they're going to help actually contribute to a massive shortage in some of these main basic commodities uh, because things like, you know, oil uh, exploration is deemed to be bad and therefore we shouldn't be doing any of it. And and, and we've seen these idiots all around London trying to say, just stop oil. Um, ultimately, I, I think as, as those who were wise enough to invest, say, in coal a couple of years ago have found, you know, you can create a massive uptick in the market simply because the supplies start to be, be constrained strained by the lack of investment in in in, in new mining well, what is what is the phrase the road to hell is paved with good intentions but there is a fantastic you know example in history here which is the um the former soviet union so the ussr was basically sort of um born in the the revolutionary fervor of 1917 and it was destined to, predestined to fail you might say as an economy as a functioning economy why because it replaced the price discovery process with central planning so mm. every year pretty much as far as i can tell in sort of historical terms out objective outside observers would say that you know this whole thing is a basket case it's going to fail it's going to fail the reality is it actually took longer than you might have thought you know the berlin wall didn't come down until 1989 so that's at least two generations worth nevertheless it had to end that way because there are, i don't think there's any example in history of a, a centrally directed no state or, or government controlled economy having ever worked and the reason is because that's not the way markets operate markets operate on the basis of something called price discovery which includes things like you know free free labor free capital flow all these kind of things and so just at the time when you know the the, the role model of the ussr is thoroughly discredited along comes blackrock saying you know what we're going to tell everybody how to invest and you have to invest in esg which i find arbitrary spurious problematic in any number of ways and the great thing about the whole esg issue today for me is that blackrock itself is now it seems to me is having to eat humble pie and i think larry fink himself has basically started to backtrack on quite the company's enthusiasm for for esg in all its forms um, but it, it's a it's an economic it's a nonsense in economic terms it's completely arbitrary so what 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 you determine to be a high esg scoring company what i determine are likely to be completely different things well, that's right, and 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 all, uh, some of the uh, defence companies score very highly on ESG, for example. And you, so you can't really get more immoral than making products that kill people. Yeah. So, so, uh, but I mean, there, it's fascinating. You know, you talk about the USSR, but don't don't you think that globally we are, we seem to be heading towards a, a much more authoritarian Marxist future, even in the so-called free democracies of the West. It's becoming very hard to discern a difference between right and left in politics. <clears throat> if you look at what happened during the pandemic, the, the way they all converged, bar Sweden, on the same policies, it does feel like we're, we're, we're heading towards A, Marxist government, B, authoritarian government, and C, global government. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on this uh, dystopian <laughs> it's almost as if there were some kind of globalist conspiracy to shut down small enterprise, the family unit, the church, and replace it with yeah neo-Marxist um, policies that benefit the uh, uber-rich and the plutocrat class. It's almost as if that were the case, isn't it? 
I, to be honest, I was always pre-COVID. I was always more leaning towards cock-up than conspiracy because you know, you can tell how incompetent most of these politicians are. Uh, but since I think it's impossible to unsee what happened during those two or three years, um, and 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 the bizarre things that we all bought into, and the 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 degree of compliance which must have had them absolutely laughing behind their hands, you know, that they could get away with this stuff. Um, well, you look, it's true. You look back at some of the, uh, and I have a fairly active Twitter feed and I follow a lot of people um, and some of them, it would be fair to say, are sort of, let's say, slightly more conspiratorially minded. And I saw an absolute belter last week, about a week or so ago, and it was a guy that was basically saying, what do you remember of the sort of the COVID insanity? Here are a few of my favourites. And I think the one of the images, one of the photos he first posted was a, was a photo of a child being christened, a baby being christened. Um, I don't know if it was the States or it was in Europe. But the the priest was behind, was had a mask on and was behind a face shield, and he was baptizing the the baby using a, a water pistol. So he was like <laughs> ten feet away. <laughs> and I have to say that is a bit of a perler. Um, and I because I didn't see that one at the time. I was aware of plenty of other insanity, but that one was a new one even for me. And we've lived through complete clown world for the last three and a half years. It's amazing to think actually what they got away with because. You, you look at it with the sort of the, the new light, the new light of a sort of the dawn of a new day. And you think, I can't believe this ever happened. But I to mean, me, it was the... difficult, at the, difficult enough at the time. But looking back on it, it now seems extraordinary that so many people bought into this rubbish. Yes. But to me, the problem, Tim, is that there's a kind of a ratchet effect where we haven't gone back to where we were then. Because don't forget, the other thing this was fantastic for was, and and, and you you saw this years before most people when you wrote the, the book, The War on Cash, back in 2016. But this was the ideal chance to say, oh, we don't want those grubby notes in here. We've gone cash-free for the good of your health. Um, and, and they haven't gone back to it. You, you try no, paying cash right. in Starbucks you're right. now. You're right. I mean, and again, there's a particular trend towards this in the largest corporations. Um, is as if they're all kind of in league against the use of the use of cash as part of the, the functioning co- economy. I remember in t- back in 2020, so we live in Hampstead and we uh, were using our local, we're going to our local Tesco and the local Tesco basically stopped using, stopped accepting cash. And we said, well, hang on, what's what's the problem with using cash? It's, you know, it's legal tender, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, we wrote to the Bank of England about it. And the Bank of England basically sort of effectively, their response was simply a shrug of the shoulders and saying, well, you know they're a free, you know, free enterprise. They can they can dictate their own terms, which I thought was not exactly the ringing endorsement of the cash society that you'd expect from a central bank. But um, no, you're right. It's 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 pretty much everything that's happened in an economic sphere over the last three three to four years has been dystopian, disturbing. Um, but it is symptomatic of a let's say a a, a uh, an organised plan. So like you, I'd like to think that at some point. Going back to the start of COVID, I was open-minded about whether it was a cock-up or a conspiracy. That 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 specific argument, that specific question, cock-up or conspiracy, is one that I and my my co-host of the podcast, Paul Rodriguez, have been asking for the last three years on the podcast we do, which is called The State of the Markets. And it's now as clear as day to me that it's not cock-up. If it were cock-up, then they would occasionally make a mistake in your favor but that's never ever happened whatever whatever mistakes have been made have all have all mysteriously been to the same outcome which is taking our freedoms away and, and consolidating power and, and wealth among the the, the, the elites yeah and, and i think there was this almost you know beggar thy neighbor attempt to impose more 
strict restrictions on people between countries. So you look at places like Australia uh, that were just shut for two or three years. You know, you look at Canada and what they've been up to. Um, uh, you know, I see the 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 preacher who, who who preached a sermon to the truck drivers in Toronto has been treated as a terrorist and sentenced to 10 years in jail. You know, you, you, you might expect this in Afghanistan, but not in Canada. You know, well, you might have expected it in the USSR, but you don't expect it in, in the, the so-called you know developed world in the west yeah i mean yeah, it is so, uh, terrifying so so i suppose the other side that like, leaving the politics to one side and coming back to economy economics and money um now i know you've been a long time advocate of of, of gold and i'm certainly in, in that camp as well i mean Clearly, to me, uh, uh, fiat currencies have a lifespan, um, and and you know global reserve currencies have a lifespan, and it feels to me like we we must be nearer the end than the beginning of of, of things like the dollar and the euro. I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Again, I mean, it, in my worldview, everything ultimately comes back to the the bond market. So, just on the topic of the um, the the, the so-called conspiracy i'm just going to sort of slot in a, a tweet that i put out earlier which is it's a question what's the difference between people associated with the world economic forum and the muppets <laughs> um i i don't know go on then what is so it what one is an ensemble cast of puppet characters known for their absurd and self-referential antics and the other is the muppets <laughs> anyway we'll move on so i'll go back to the answer in the question um so like I say, I think everything can be seen ultimately through the prism of debt. If, like us, you accept the thesis that there's simply far too much debt now clogging the arteries of the global economy, then there are only three ways of resolving this predicament. One is that governments um, engineer enough economic growth to keep the debt serviced. We, we'd, I'd have argued 10 years ago that that was impossible. Certainly in 08, it was impossible. It's doubly impossible now. Mm. The second option is that you have a well, let's call it what it is, a default, or what they would probably call it, prefer to call it, which would be a restructuring or a reset or a jubilee. And that's been the hist one historical outcome. You know, certainly in sort of going back to like the biblical era, after a while, people's debts were basically just, you know, they'd wipe the slate clean. Mm. And then what's in box number three? What's in box number three is actually what's pretty much happened every time throughout history that governments have got. Head, head over heels out of control in, in debt, and it's called inflation. More specifically, an explicit policy of state-sanctioned inflationism. In other words, you just inflate the stuff away. Now, at the, there will come a point, and I think that point may come quite soon, when everyone starts appreciating that their debt is, is, is less and less likely to be paid back in honest money. And so they ditch the debt and replace it with something else. The Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises referred to this situation as the so-called crack-up boom. And the crack-up boom, which he had first-hand experience of in Weimar, uh, Austria and Germany in 1923, is basically when people start to realize that their money is becoming, is, is becoming worth less and less by the day. And, that, and a light bulb goes on over everyone's head and they realize, you know what, this, this money's crap. I need to exchange it for something that might actually retain its value, something that has tangible value. And then that's when the rush to real assets starts. And that's in, 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 in one form, just in just one reason alone, why we have so much allocated to things like precious metals and commodities, because that moment may, may be fast approaching, that there is a revulsion globally against holding debt. And therefore, anyone that's not forced to own it, like, say, a pension fund or a state institution, 
says, I'll own something else. And that something else may well be the likes of gold or, you know, or, or precious metals or energy, oil or gas or something, 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 you know, useful. And I think yeah. we're also living through probably the tail end of the petrodollar system now. Indeed, yes, we can come on to that. But the the um, one of the things that I've been really excited about this year is 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 you know because at, at Beaufort we 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 raise uh, equity capital for for growing companies, and we've been raising for a company called Glint, and they they've managed to do something which no one else has done, which is to turn gold bullion into practical everyday money. So it's a combination of a phone app and, and a Mastercard, and you you basically buy your gold and it's stored in the Brinks Vault in Zurich. But you then walk into your local Starbucks, which, of course, no longer takes cash. Uh, you buy an Americano for £2.50 and you tap the terminal with your MasterCard. And in 200 nanoseconds, it sells £2.50's worth of gold and converts it to sterling. And the merchant is none the wiser. So suddenly we now have the ability to, to use gold as everyday money. And I, I've got members in, in Bofa who've got six, seven, eight hundred thousand pounds of sterling sitting in high street bank accounts you know leave aside the fact that it's no longer your money and you're just a creditor of the bank but you know i say to them you realize that's lost you know a hundred grand of purchasing power this year do you think that's a, a wise thing to be doing with your wealth and and there's still i think a uh, uh, you know, not a, a strong enough or urgent enough realization of how wealth is being destroyed through inflation. I mean, the the, the cliche that so many people are now resorting to is the Hem the Hemingway quote about you know how did you how did you go bankrupt? And the response is well, slowly and then all at once. And I think that's probably that this is the nature of markets, the nature of human beings is that the, the, these are not linear processes. That they're not just sort of like slow upward sloping straight lines. Things change very very quickly. So the, one of the best analogies I think there is of sort of the way markets evolve, in it, certainly in a free market capacity, is that uh, it's like the idea of um, snow settling on a just on a on a hill that you have snow slowly settling on a, a snow mass, and there will come a point at which, if there's say a little outcrop, then the 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 snow mass will shift from being stable in stable equilibrium to being in an unstable equilibrium and that's when an avalanche can start now you can't predict which snowflake is going to trigger the avalanche but what you can state with some degree of certainty is that beyond a certain stage that snow mass is no longer stable well i'd say that the global capital market structure is now distinctly unstable so whether it lasts another few weeks hours months or years you know that's not that's in the lap of the gods but what we can say i think with a degree of certainty now if history is any guide is this is an unstable situation and so the last thing we want to happen is to be caught owning exactly the wrong things uh in the face of a what could be quite a, a dramatic monetary reset no absolutely and, and i think just to come back to something you touched on there briefly um I suppose for at least 50 years now, perhaps arguably since World War II, we've lived in a sort of unipolar world that's very US and dollar centric. But as we talk now, we're just seeing this uh, BRICS conference going on in South Africa, BRICS being expanded with people like Saudi Arabia and Iran joining. And, and suddenly there does seem to be this credible 
second force in the world, which could end up with some kind of currency that could be backed by gold or oil or whatever. Um, uh, uh, do you, so, so in a sense of that instability, do you, do you see that being a, a, a contributor to further instability, or do you actually see it being a, a potentially positive thing to have this, this more of a, a bipolar financial world? Well, I'm a, a free market libertarian, and I believe in free markets, and I believe in free market capitalism. So ultimately, that kind of has to mean that I believe in choice, and so let's say consumer choice. At the moment, for most people, realistically, there is no choice because, as you say, the dollar is preeminent. I don't think I don't think we're gonna the dollar is gonna continue to be preeminent for I think during our our own lifetimes we're gonna see the dethroning of King Dollar, and. The, the issue isn't whether the BRICS can pull off a sort of a gold-backed or commodity-backed currency uh, effortlessly. The question is, will the, the the predominance of the dollar last? And I think the answer to the latter question is, no, it won't. So the, the key thing, arguably, that happened here is the way that the Biden administration reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And a friend of mine, very soon after that that conflict kicked off last year, pointed out that even at the height of the Second World War, a hot shooting war that encompassed pretty much every country on the planet, even at the height of the Second World War, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, the so-called Central Bank for Central Banks, always acknowledged and respected the um, property rights of the, the Nazi regime. So in other words, they didn't just arbitrarily start nicking Nazi reserves held abroad. That is exactly what the US did in response to, to you know, Russia or Ukraine. So Russian assets overseas got seized. Russian dollar reserves overseas got seized. The wealth of Russian citizens overseas got seized. And Russia got frozen out of the swift dollar settlement system. This has never happened before. And if the Biden administration or the UN or NATO thought that this was going to be a, a positive development, they, they, they don't seem to have thought the, the issue through very hard because what that, what that sex, I would say, illegal sequestration of assets is brought in its wake is it's moved Russia even closer into orbit around China, and it's led to all non-aligned countries in the world, unaligned to the US, that is, thinking, do we really want to trust the dollar? Do we really want to trust US Treasury bonds for our own reserve assets if that's if that's what a nuclear power can end up happening happening to them, courtesy of this, you know, the the demented lunatic is notionally in charge of the US at the moment. And so that that I think will go down in history as one of the most catastrophic policy failures ever. No, absolutely, and 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 we keep we keep being told how much it's going to damage Putin, but uh, if anything, he seems to be going from strength to strength, as as does his economy. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's a real worry. In fact, I, I was watching just yesterday uh, an interview with uh, Tucker Carlson, the conservative commentator. Oh, is that with uh, Orban? Uh, no, th- uh, no. This was where he was. He was saying that his view I- I- is that oh, there's going to be a nuclear war. That America wants a real shooting war with Russia, yeah. um, and that it's an election strategy of the Democrats to try and keep Trump out. You know, they, they, they'll either they'll either assassinate Trump or start a war in Russia uh, with uh, in Ukraine with Russia or both. But um, clearly, there are 
significant geopolitical risks in the world today. Um, and I guess that, that must steer you back towards the safe harbor of, of precious metals. Um, just, just to put a number on it, you know, what, what would you say was a sensible allocation for someone's portfolio to have in, in, in gold or precious metals at the moment, Tim? I mean, if I look at our own client portfolios, and obviously everyone's different. So we, we, we have a discretionary service, which accounts for the bulk of our assets. Uh, for the discretionary clients that we have, the allocation to gold and precious metals and commodities related investments is probably close to 50%. So of that, probably 10% or so is is the physical bullion itself. And then the remainder will be royalty and streaming companies and then large and mid cap and maybe even some junior uh, mining companies on top. So we, we as, as in the fund that we manage, we, we've gone pretty much all in on this. Um, 50% probably, probably feels like the limit to, to which it should be the case but um uh, the, the my other question in response would be how much allocation do you want to have to either cash or to debt and i'd say that right now we feel the correct answer to that question is roughly zero <laughs> indeed just not everyone might understand how the uh the, the royalty and streaming uh companies work you know just briefly explain that model sure so we to... i find these a fascinating sort of subset of the sort of the mining the mining sector so in, at the one end of the scale, you've got bullion itself. You've got either gold bars or sil or silver bars in a in a vault somewhere, and that's the, the physical asset. And, and that, so that's all you get. You know what you see is what you get. So you don't get an income stream from it. You just get the 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 idea the, the the relative safety of having money in a non fiat currency form. And then you've got the likes of say mining companies, and they could be large cap, mid cap, or, or juniors. And obviously the juniors are going to be the most speculative and the most risky, but potentially also the most rewarding if they if they come good. And then you've got a sector sort of in the middle, which is the sort of royalty and streaming company. And the royalty and streaming companies, these are companies like Franco Nevada or Wheat and Precious Metals. Um, they, they're like mining companies, except they don't offer exploration or production risk. So what they'll do, if you imagine, say, someone like um, Antofagasta has, a, a, say, a, a mine, a copper mine in Chile. A byproduct of that copper mine might be silver. And then someone like Silver Wheaton might come along and say to them, look, you've got some silver that, frankly, isn't what you're mining for. You're mining for copper. We'll take the silver off your hands for a fee, and we'll we'll basically come to an agreement with you, obviously on unfair terms to both sides, and we'll contract to, to take that silver off, off you for cash in return for having a stream of silver in perpetuity for as long as the... Um, for as long as the ore body is there and is productive. So what that means is they're like a, a, a silver mining company, except they don't actually do the exploration or production, which is part of the riskiest and most capital-intensive part of the process. So we describe them as like a halfway house. The royalty and streaming companies are like a halfway house between bullion itself and the full risk of a sort of diversified mining company. Okay, and 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 how when you invest in them, do do you do you see strong dividend returns from those kind of models? I mean, they you... do they do pay dividends, but I I don't think for any mining company you you own them for income specifically. You own them for uh, expected capital growth. Um, but the to put a figure on that, if we've done our homework correctly, then the sort of mining companies that we see value in today. And I'm looking. I'm thinking of sort of not least how they performed in the 70s. My, commodities, commodities were the best asset class to own in the 1970s. And the reason I cite the 70s is because the 70s seems like a very fair analog to the decade we're now in. In other words, one mm. of high inflation, low growth, you know, social problems, geopolitical tensions, etc., etc., etc. And if we've done our homework, uh, hopefully, 
half right, then the sort of returns we expect to make on a kind of mean reversion basis would be of sort of 5x, 10x type returns. So the and that would be both from royalty companies and from streaming companies and and from diversified miners. So so the answer is basically I think what I'm hearing is you you, you need to get into these uh, resource related sectors and then you need to be patient and let the market come to you over the next what two three five years. Yes, correct, Ab- absolutely right. So the the one requirement that's that, that's essential for anyone considering a, a value approach is is patience. There's a, a, a former Canadian, um, sort of a Canada's answer to Warren Buffett, a guy called Peter Kundal, who sadly died a few years ago, but he was a, a great value investor in Canada. And he said the the primary requirement for success in value investing is patience, patience, and more patience. And he also said the majority of investors do not possess this characteristic. <laughs> so that's that's the problem that, you know, for people who have got that, what Charlie Munger would call that, so that patience gene, then you know the, the the odds are on their side, but as you've already alluded, value's been out of favour now for so long that most people are rev- revolted by the idea of owning value stocks, which is probably exactly the right time to be buying them. Exactly, I was just going to say that's usually the perfect time, isn't it? Now you mentioned the you know comparison in the nineteen seventies, and one of the things that I found so frustrating in the last couple of years, uh, uh, certainly in, in in the case of Britain, is the lack of political focus on economic growth. And I thought for one split second that we had that coming with the, the the Liz Trust quasi Quarteng alliance, but boy, were they bundled out of office pretty quickly. And, and they were the only ones with a genuine growth agenda with investment zones and tax breaks and things. And now that the so-called grown-ups are in charge, it seems like, you know, we're, we're stuck in the uh, you know, flatlining growth, uh, guilt yields going up again to a point probably uh, higher than they were even when Liz Trust was around. So what is happening to the the, the government of the United Kingdom? Too? Well, it's it's almost like there's being a controlled demolition of our economy, isn't it? And yeah. what, what's really weird is that the, the 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 reputed reason for defenestrating the Liz Truss administration was that um, guilt yields, UK government bond yields, got out of control, and so she had to be shown the door. Guilt yields are now higher than they were when Liz Truss was fired. Um, a skeptic would come to the conclusion that our political leaders are no longer elected, they are appointed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose that it seems, you know, reasonable to assume that we're going to end up with a, a, a Labour government sometime next year. Well, we've already got one, haven't we? I mean, in terms of policy. So this, you alluded to it earlier, but we now we no longer have a functioning democratic system. So I don't remember anybody voting for uh, lockdowns. I don't remember anybody voting for 15 minute cities. I don't remember anybody voting for net zero. And yet mysteriously, there's you know, unanimous alleged support for these policies. If you take, say, the example of the the the, the COVID insanity as as at twenty twenty, um, you had a a notionally conservative government pressing for lockdown, and you had a Labour op- notional opposition arguing for an even harder, faster lockdown. Where was the opposition? We no longer have a functioning democracy, and it's the same in the states. What we have is the Uni Party. Mm. Yeah, and 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 it's difficult to know. You know, obviously, you, you, I think your clients, like ours, are mainly high net worth families. Um, it's difficult to know what's going to happen because I can't help but feel that although we have the Uniparty, somebody like Starmer is going to want to create some kind of clear blue water between himself and the Tories, which suggests to me some new forms of taxation, whether that's you know some form of the mansion tax or a wealth tax on your overall assets. I mean, what, what, what are your kind of 
clients and, 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 and members thinking about and worrying about at the moment? And what do you think they can do about it? Well, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great line from uh, a not-so-great Spielberg film called Bridge of Spies. And I don't know if you've seen it, but um, Tom Hanks plays, I think, a negotiator. And you've got a couple of people that are being exchanged in a spy swap, an American and a Russian. And the, um, I, f- I forget the, the, the precise details, but one of these guys is basically facing a, a death sentence. And Tom Hanks says to him, you don't seem very worried about this. And th- the guy's response is, would it help? <laughs> so, you know, we can worry. There, you know, this is a very worry-rich environment for sure. But at the end of the day, there's only so, there's only so many practical steps we can take to to try and mitigate some of the risks. So from an investment perspective, it comes down to things like, you know, genuine diversification across asset classes. So for us, that means basically value stocks plus systematic trend-following funds, which are a type of portfolio protection that, that we use quite quite actively, plus real assets, the likes of gold and silver and commodities companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And being just as, let's say, proactive in in understanding what not to own. And for us, what not to own at this particular moment in economic history is you know, significant amounts of cash, which is based as naked fiat currency exposure and naked banking counterparty risk, and debt, which is once again a combination of faith in politicians' promises and fiat currency exposure. So um, it would probably be fair to say that our, our portfolio structure looks like probably no other firms at, at all right now, but that's because we have some very specific concerns about the future, and that's even before the likes of a Labour government hoves into view. No, indeed, as you say. That I mean, the, the only other thing that can be considered, and certainly, you know, I, I've uh, walked my own talk on this, is is looking for you know places to live where you might be better treated. And and they always say money goes to where it's well treated. And I think I think people with money need to think like that as well. And I'm uh, you know in a, in a much sunnier and much lower tax environment here in Portugal. And we've probably um, very nice food and wine into the bargain. I would like uh, to think. I, I do manage to force down a little bit of that <laughs> local cuisine. Yes, that's uh, very true. So. So, so clearly there Portuguese are choices. Terrific, isn't it? Portugal, Portugal is very underrated as a, as a as a cuisine, I think. No, absolutely, and 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 I think what's interesting because we, we recently joined up with um, Henley and Partners, who both work with clients looking for second residency and citizenship, but also work with governments to offer it. And there seems to be, despite these attempts from Biden and Co. to impose you know worldwide minimum tax levels and so on, there seems to be a growing uh, number of countries that want to attract high net worth people and are prepared to offer all kinds of lifestyle and tax benefits to do so. So, um, you know, I think part of the mix going forward in people's thinking should be not just treating, you know, stocks and shares and funds as assets, but also treating residency and citizenship as assets, you know, and passports and things like that. So I think unless I'm mistaken, I'm pretty sure I'm not the in terms of sort of living through a really extraordinary period in sort of economic and and cultural geopolitical history, the developed so-called developing economies now account for I think more of a share of world GDP than the so-called developed markets do. So we are living through a really strange period in history where you know old certainties are just being put to the sword practically on a daily basis. It seems. 
Absolutely. And, and my, my, my final kind of, uh, you know, plan C, if this is plan B, is that I've got nearly 800 members now in, in, in Beaufort Society. So I'm going to ask them all to put 50,000 in the pot, which would give us a, a 40 million budget for which I think we could buy a decent sized island and just, just leave these guys to destroy the Western world and we'll all go and live happily ever after. So um, I think if we were going to use gold as currency, could I, I, I get you to come and join us? Tim? Well, I think absolutely. The other thing I'd, I'd suggest is I used to write for a service called Sovereign Man, uh, run by a guy called Simon Black. And Simon mm. is active in the agricultural scene in Chile. Right. And I, be, I I had the pleasure of going down to visit some of his farmland about seven or eight years ago. But I, before I went down there, I asked him what his sort of security policy was. And he said his security policy was a toothless Mexican with a shotgun who speaks no English. <laughs> I think we should all have one of those for sure. Too. And I'm thinking so, he was he was well ahead of the curve with that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's been really fascinating, uh, Tim. One thing I would really recommend to people is that they they get hold of your market commentaries, which I know they can they can download from your your website at uh, pricevaluepartners.com. Um, and you, I think you you have actually managed to revive your your uh, aspirations of being a writer. And, and I know you obviously used to do loads of stuff with Money Week as well, but uh, these are, are really uh, enjoyable reads and very informative reads. Uh, I think you, you produce one almost every week now, don't you? Yeah, I mean, the, the trick to this, which I sh should not be talking about publicly, is that because I've got such an extensive archive of old material, I find that I'm I'm a great believer in recycling. <laughs> Well, I haven't I haven't recognized any recycling yet. They're all still worth reading. So well, that, that, I guess joy if, is, that joy is ahead for you. Thank you. So so I guess if people want more information about you or the fund, the, the website's the best place to go. Yeah, I just go to the website, pricevaluepartners.com, and we've got plenty of information about who we are and what we do there. Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us uh, today, Tim, and uh, look forward to hearing more from you in the weeks and months ahead. Absolute pleasure. We'll enjoy, enjoy Portugal and enjoy the island. I will indeed. I'll, uh, I'll I'll tell you where we're going and you can come and join us. Thanks a lot, Love Tim. You. All the best. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye now. Thanks for listening. If you qualify as a high net worth investor because you earn more than £100,000 a year or you have an investment portfolio of £250,000 or more outside your main home and pension, you can join our investor community free of charge at BeauftPrivateEquity.com. Yeah.